The Lonely Arts Club is a series of interviews with creative and cultural people discovering their journey into the arts and where it's led them. This week, we're launching Series 3, and to kick off, Martin McQuillan is joined by Colin McEwen. Colin is a TV producer and founder of Liverpool-based company, LA Productions. After being told by his mum that a career in Butlins wasn't for him, we hear how Colin's journey in TV took him around the world before being called back to Liverpool. Colin, welcome to the Lonely Arts Club. Thanks, glad to be here. Sounds like some blind dating for old farts. Well, if you listen to some of the people we've had in the podcast, it's not a million miles off. Yeah, I listened to Willie Russell's the whole day. Pick the box. Um, let's begin, as we like to do on the podcast, and find out about you. Tell us about where you grew up. Well, it's easy, really. I, I grew up in Heighton. Heighton, Heighton, two dogs fighting, one's a black and one's a white. Um, secondary modern school um, was St. Aloysius. Remarkably enough, the same school that Alan Bleasdale went to. But I think he's older than me. But yes, Heighton. Heighton has had a big influence in my life. And very, very recently, the last thing I ever did, uh, not quite the last thing because we've just finished shooting Moving On, um, series of five. But prior to that, we did Anthony, and it's Anthony Walker, who, of course, was a Heightonian lad and died in Heighton. So Heighton has been an inspiration uh, and a focus on my life ever since I was born, really. Tell us about your parents. What did they do? Yeah, my dad was um, General Secretary of the Transport and, and General Workers Union. Uh, he worked at a list to drive power station. He was uh, a union activist, borderline communist, I think, really, in a way. He certainly had lovely philosophical views, but most kids are put to bed with stories of fairy tales, aren't they, really? You know, the, the, the three birds and Goldilocks and things like that. We were put to bed with stories of Scarface Nelson and Babyface Moran and, and all <laughs> New York, because like a lot of people, my dad managed to get a, on one of the ships as a stowaway, really, and went to Ellis Island illegally, and went to the States and was a busboy and used to give us, recall his tales, whether any of them were true, I don't know, but they were great stories. And my mum was of a higher class. My mum uh, was uh, a daughter of a shop owner in Liverpool, just off Dale Street. In fact, it's opposite a pub called The Grapes in, in that area. People, Lots of people will know it. And it's now houses and it's not uh, a shop anymore. But my mum and my dad uh, married, but they were teenage sweethearts. But they separated and got married separately. My mum's dad died, my dad's dad died, and they had children uh, of those respective relationships. And then they came together. So effectively, we had her kids, his kids, and their kids. So I was of the third generation of kids. So we had a house of 13 people in Heighton. And it's I have been back and I've thought, how in God's name did we ever survive in that? Like, was it a three-bedroom terrace or anything? Yeah, I think, I think it was three bedrooms. I used to share a cup originally with my sisters. And I remember my sisters at a certain age, I think I might have been about six or seven, saying to my mum, I don't think it's hygienic having our Colin sleeping in our bed. So I I wonder what this was. I remember telling my mum, is it because if men breathe, they breathe on women and they they draw in that air and it's not healthy? Right? I had no idea why, why it was not hygienic. Uh, even though we were top and tailed in the bed. Uh, so eventually I moved out and graduated to be able to sleeping in with the boys' room and was one of the lads went to the forces, because conscription was obviously a, a part of that growing up for their generation, I managed to graduate to the boys' room where eventually I had my own bed. How did you do at school? Terrible. Uh, absolutely terrible. Why? Because the way out from Heighton as a lad, you became a priest or a footballer. That was your way out. So I was going to be a footballer. And uh, I was a good footballer, by the way. But everybody you speak to in Liverpool is full of crap. They'll always give you a story about 
how I trained, how, how I had my trial, how my trial didn't work out with Liverpool Football Club or Everton Football Club or somebody. In my case, it was Bolton. And uh, there was me and a guy called Peter Robinson. And Peter Robinson was about the same height, same age. We're both centre-halves. And he got it and I didn't. Uh, I was heartbroken. Uh, although my sisters were very religious, I couldn't see me taking the priest's path. So I remember my mum giving me one of those wonderful Scouse mums ultimatums. She said, son, do you want to go to Butlins with your mates? And this was a turning point in my life, by the way. Do you want to go to Butlins with your mates, be a waiter, earn lots of ready cash, but it gets all absorbed by the girls they meet and go down that route? Or do you want to go to Riversdale Tech and become a radio officer like your half-brother, Donny. So I said, okay, well, I have thought about it, and Butlins is for me. And she said, well, it's not. It's Riversdale Tech. And I said, I thought I had a choice. She said, no, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) So I went to to Riversdale Tech. Uh, I wanted to be a radio officer, and I thought I'd come home from sea, with my brother did, with gold braid on his arm and a blonde on each arm as well, I thought. Yeah, I can manage that. And they said to me, well, the course you're going on is going to be radio and TV and not telecommunications, marine telecommunications. But don't worry, we'll move you across at the right time uh, so you can become a radio officer. But for now, it's got to be radio and tele. So my half-brother Larry was an aerial contractor. And he said, I can get you an apprenticeship with... um, Radio Rentals, by the way, in St. Helens. Because I know says Willie Russell went on about Rain Hill and all that, you know. So we just St. Helens comes around to absorb you, you know. Um, so I said, okay, yeah, all right, then well, I'll 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 do that. I'll 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 start off there because I'm going to be a radio officer, so that's fine. So you you can see the distance and the years going on, and I was graduating. Um, so education started to mean something positively to me. So I could do my my city and girls. So I became a TV engineer status very, very young. Uh, and I kept on at Riversdale. So I wanted to do telecommunications to make that change over at some point to be gold braid, blonde on each arm. Anyway, that was my aspirations. I was heading for that aspiration. And then I learned to drive and good money. And I was doing well, actually, because I was an engineer. And by the way, I'm the only producer alive that I know that can actually fix your telly as well as put programs on the front of it. There you go. Just a little byproduct. So as we are um, going along the journey of um, now a uh, fully-fledged engineer at Radio Rental, still waiting to get uh, my fully-fledged marine radio badges and stuff, they said to me at Riversdale, there are some places at Granada Studios for trainees why don't you try for that i was convinced in the end because they actually said they would pay our railway fee which is unheard of then to go to manchester to be interviewed by them so i went to manchester uh to granada studios um at the tender age of 19 i think and um they said right we understand what your interests are we understand what you have and uh, although it's a little bit lower than the other ones yeah um we'll offer you a job and they offered me this job as a, a production trainee, which is sort of a five-year traineeship, a bit like an apprenticeship, really. Wholly unknown and in this industry. Now, you'd never got any form of the training we got. I was trained in every single department at Canada Studios. So, like, I go in on my first day. I'm running upstairs in Canada Studios, and I bump into this woman and say, I'm really sorry, love, and I'm looking for... The videotape department that put me in there and she says who are you son and I said well, I'm a trainee and I said sorry it's my first day first day is it mm, I'll look after you and it was Violet Carson who played in the Sharples so, uh, I only realised that after I passed her I thought I better tell my mum I bumped into Ina Sharples that was my first day and I was subsequently trained by Granada Studios for five years in every single department um, which was props. I even remember going home to say to my mum, I'm in makeup this week. She said, makeup, for God's sake, son. I said, no, it's you, you have to know knowledge of light, colours, so forth. It's something you need to do as an engineer as well. Hmm. So eventually I went on outside broadcast 
and met Bill Shankly for the first time. So being a scouser, I went straight up to him and said, I'm a big red, I'm with Granada Studios, who employs 2,000 people, Bill, I'm the only scouser. And he went, hey, son, uh, come with me. And he took me all around Anfield, the trophy room, with a little teapot, because he was a teetotaler. And he said, uh, you come often? And I said, well, I think I'm coming on a module every time. He said, well, come and say hello every time you come. And I did. And I got to know him well. I got to know his wife, Nessie. And for a fan to be confronted by their idol uh, and have conversations with him, it was just incredible. And all my mates uh, knew that I was working for television. So they were all in the cop. And I used to go to the gantry and look down and they would shout, Collins on the telly, Collins on the telly, Collins on... You know, that was like 20,000 people, you know, singing now. For, not, none of them knew who I was. I the group of fans who were very vocal in one corner. So during that five years at Granada, were you still living in the... Still the bed in the boys' room in, in Houghton? Uh, no. I, I graduated slowly to have my own room. I had my own room at a telly. That was a, a social lift, to say the least. Uh, and, of course, I was on good money at... Uh, Granada because when I even as a trainee my brother's the one who had was the aerial contractor he said to me yeah being a trainee is all right son but you know you're never going to get anywhere doing that and how much are they paying you so I showed him what I was uh, I, I was on more than he was uh, it was a fabulous amount of money because we were just so highly paid really so um very quickly I got a house in Penketh in Warrington so I'd moved out the boys' room and I graduated and I was uh, a house owner, my God. You know, very early on, about 21. And uh, got married, got married very early on. Uh, about 19, 20, I got married and had a child at 21. So I was new job, new house, new frontiers and a new baby. One of the most significant times was uh, I'd only been there about 18 months and they give you a job as trainee on various shows. And I was on Coronation Street um, as a trainee. And as a trainee, you got a credit. And I remember saying to me, Mum, Mum, you know, you watch Coronation Street religiously. Well, I actually get a credit. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, my name goes up on... Your name goes up on Coronation Street. She told the world, told everybody, every neighbour, every relative, everybody to the extent that they all crowded around the house. And when the, when the episode went on the air, they all applauded. It's where I'd won the European Cup, you know. And um, I became that lad who lived in that house one time, who's been on Coronation Street, which I, which I hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> but so about a year later, I'm in BTR doing a bit of editing and, and, and sort of as an assistant editor. And uh, Lawrence Olivier comes into the room. Now I've been doing a show a show called World at War, and he was he did voiceover for World at War. And as he came in, it was just so flukely. I'd just finished the show and I transmitted it, and I said to him, "You're Lance Olivier, aren't you? I've just transmitted your World at War. You had the voiceover. Did you get paid for that?" He said, "I only get paid for it, son, on transmission." I said, "Mum, I've just transmitted it. Have you? Have you got a phone?" So I had a phone right by the machine. So he rings his agent and asks for his money. Basically, and they didn't say you only get it when you transmit it. He said, This gentleman next to me is just transmitting a bloody thing, you know. So, I mean, speak to him. So, I had to speak to his agent. Said, yeah, I have, I can verify. So, the money was on his way to him. So, he said to me, Why don't you come and work with me, young man? And I said, Well, no offense, you're only an actor, aren't you? So, he said, uh, Well, I'm actually producing this, and it was a series of Lawrence Olivier presents. Uh, on this one, it was Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with Robert Wagner, Natalie Wood. And he was playing Big Daddy Olivier in it, and he was producing it as well. So I was in BTR, and fundamentally, I was assisting on that show. And I remember I'm at the back. They told me to sit, observe, and say nothing. So I sat at the back of the edit, saying nothing. And like in front of me, they were trying to get a, a snapshot of Natalie Wood as, as she turned left but they didn't have one. And it was a big debate and Olivia was involved in the debate and they all stopped the edit because of it. And I put my hand up and said, excuse me. And they all looked round, and I could see I was beamed, glassy-eyed by the editor thinking, Is, who told that guy to say anything? And I said, I, 
you have got that shot. I said before the board went in, Natalie would turn like that because somebody shouted that. And you could use that turn, but it because the board goes out in a second and then it comes back in again. So nobody said anything which felt like for an age. And Olivia says, let's try that then. So they went back, found the moment, used the take, and nobody said thank you. But Olivia looked and nodded to me, and I was made up, absolutely made up. So I went home to my mum and said, mum, mum. And Olivia said to me, well done. And I told her the whole instance of what had happened with Natalie Wood and so forth. And she says, you're still working on Coronation Street, though, son, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I said, yes, Mum, that's only on a wedding stage. She said, well, that's fine, and that's fine. No problem at all. <laughs> so uh, it was great. Those times were wonderful, really, you know, um, because engineers looked after the equipment on editing, so they were effectively editors. So already I'd started a crossover from engineering to production. And having learned all the various departments, including film editing, uh, sound dubbing, sound recording, video recording, just everything really in a way. It's, I mean, it, it, it was a fabulous process. And, you know, over that five years, you think that will never happen again. And to this day, it's never happened again. And I've never had a scheme like that, never will have a scheme like that. And so I didn't understand it was a precursor for me to eventually becoming a producer. But um, during that time at Ganada, eventually... The unions, which were enormous at that time, the ACTT, which is the Technicians Union, were so strong that they could stop shows, stop anything, really. But Maggie Thatcher, of course, had got them in her sights, and uh, they had reacted by banning all new technology. So the industry went through a very strange period where um, they'd banned new technology and things were sluggish. And we as technicians were being offered various jaunts overseas. And I was offered by the Ministry of Information uh, an opportunity to go training in the Middle East for a year uh, at a salary which was 14 times, 14 times my own tax-free, which was a huge amount of money, probably more money than the Prime Minister was on. Quite a lot of the lads were attracted by it. I didn't. I had a young child and I thought, I don't want to do this. But the industry seemed to be stagnating, really. So I thought, Oh, I'll give it a go. Let's just do one year. I'll just give one year. And in one year, with that amount of money, we could buy our house for a start. So we get a leg up. So there was various placements. And the one that they gave me was, in, I'll never forget it, by the way, <laughs> in a town called Bereda. So it's the sort of place that um, Clint Eastwood would be, would be the mayor of, you know, in, in the outback somewhere, you know. And it was in the province of Qasim. You must have a look at it sometime. So Bereda, Qasim, um, Saudi Arabia. Nobody's ever heard of it, I'm sure. Um, I was going out to be chief engineer of a station. And the station had a transmitter. It had a studio. You made the programs in the studio, um, along with telecine, so you could put those out. And you had videotape, you could put those out. So you made programs, you had recorded programs. And just like a mini version of Ganada, you were it, you were God, basically. So I remember flying out from Riyadh to this place called Qasim. And my mum had packed lots of different things in, like a tin box, which looked the size of a coffin, to be honest with you, all kinds of things in it. And as we landed... That made me open the tin box. And right on the very top, she'd put shreddies, as only mothers could. Couldn't believe shreddies something. Jesus. So they asked me what the shreddies were, and I said, well, the, the shreddies, they're the, the cereal, the malt cereal that you eat. Uh, great kerfuffle about them, um, various metawas and uh, religious leaders and, and various members of um, the military were brought out to inspect these malt sweets. So, you know, I couldn't quite understand what the problem was, you know, uh, why, why they should find them so threatening. And, of course, if you ever look at them, they actually look like microphones, don't they? And I got the gist from a translator that they thought there were, there were listening devices. So I, I tried to explain that it was a, a cereal, you know. And so I picked one up in the end, put it on the end of my tongue, and bit it, they all reacted to it and realised it wasn't a bomb or a microphone or anything. 
and allowed me to carry on. So I, I went into the TV station and Kwasim and Bereda met this very uh, rotund uh, American from New York who was just one-liners, really. He met me at the airport and said, uh, what have you got that suit on for? Because God knows why, but I had a suit on. Can you imagine flying into Saudi with a bloody suit on? So I just said, uh, oh, well, I just had to put a suit on, you know, to make a good impression. <laughs> so he said, you're going to wear that suit all the while? So trying to be humorous from Liverpool, I said to him, no, no, I normally put my top hat and tails on over the weekend. So he looked at me as if I was absolutely nuts, this guy, and um, took me to his sort of chalet, uh, which is like prefabricated place. I was taking over him. I had about a week with him before he'd go. And he tried to explain to me roughly what the job was, which was quite clearly, you know, running the whole station. And he left me with a houseboy who, when I say boy, the guy was about late 40s. Anyway, on the first night, Fred, this guy was, and he says to me, you shoot dogs? So I said, shoot dogs? So I'm thinking, you know, like crap shooting, I think it's probably something to do with gambling, you know, or, or dice. And I said, uh, well, you know, I've, I've had a go and, you know, I'm going to have a go again. Okay. He said, come on. So he, he drags me out. We go into his ram charger. And, of course, he throws a gun in the back. And I thought, this isn't shooting dogs like crap at all. This is shooting dogs. So I'm driving. And I said to him, look, we don't shoot dogs in the UK. I, I he said, but it's okay, they're wild, they're wild, nobody cares. You just go out and you shoot them. And I said, I, I, I don't want to shoot them. And this guy was really, really forceful. So I thought, well, I'll pretend. And he gave me the gun and I thought, well, I'll just shoot out the window and just pretend and just have no good at these things. And I, I shot out the window and it's a rock, it's another rock and it's unfortunately a dog on the tail. And he went, good shot, Mac. And I was a good friend then because I'd shot a dog. Uh, that was my introduction into Saudi Arabia. And then uh, he went, thank God, and I started to slowly build my career in Saudi Arabia by training the Arabs with cameras, small cameras, um, we, we, because we had said to them, ENG, electronic news gathering, is taking place in various places in Europe, not in the UK, because remember I'd said they'd stop new technology. But they wanted to uh, be ahead of things, the Saudis. So they had an agreement with the French. And there was a French company called Thompson CSF, small cameras. So we were training with small cameras. Um, and I couldn't believe the sensitivity of them. I was used to EMI 2001 studio cameras. Do you remember them? Enormous to this day. The lens size alone was like that, wasn't it? This was a camera like this. So I train the Arabs on, on this, and we, we started a, to put together a mini soap because, of course, I'd worked on Family at War, I'd worked on Stars Look Down, I'd worked on Coronation Street. So I tried to get them to put together a, a useful sort of soap that may be good uh, for the Middle East for them to learn things because there was problems with the milk over there in rural places. And I thought, well, let's put some social problems in so on a, on a drama we can explain them. So we did that. And uh, I probably created one of the first soaps ever in the Middle East by doing it, really. It was a sort of a ad hoc type thing, but we did it um, and we put it together. And I ended up, you know, slowly but surely going to different stations because my reputation went out as a person who could teach, who could learn, who had good specific knowledge of broadcasting. So eventually they asked me, would I undertake the televisation of the Hajj? So I would be allowed to go to Mecca. Can you get this? Heighten, lad, going to Mecca. Nobody's been to Mecca. There's nobody officially ever gone to Mecca. I'm going to Mecca. You know, King Carla that says, go to Mecca. So I'm thinking, oh, Jesus. So they take me out to Mecca. And I, I just considered it an outside broadcast, like this is Anfield, <laughs> you know, Mecca. And we would get our signals, you know, beamed up from the nearest midpoint. So I managed to get signals out of Mecca. Nobody else has ever done that and televised the first televisation of, of the Hajj, which was an incredible event to see. So thousands and thousands of, of Muslims going on a, a circular journey around the Holy Kubba one time in their life. And fundamentally, the journey to the Hajj was them selling things along the way, uh, various 
uh, carpets and everything just to fund the journey. So it was a social phenomenon, really, um, to do so. And I remember getting a phone call. One of the Saudi princes says, Gaddafi's on the line. He wants to speak to you. Take no notice. He's an idiot, but he wants to speak to you. So I'd sort of vaguely heard of this guy called Gaddafi. But anyway, he spoke to me and he said, I know who you are. You're the English engineer. You're showing secrets of the holy cover. Stop it immediately. I said, I'm only doing what I'm told to do. I work for the Ministry of Information and Saudi princes uh, will have some objection. So I remember this phone being grabbed from me and the Saudi prince having an exchange. And when the exchange had finished, uh, I said, I won't use the F word, right? But that's what was used. So um, <laughs> the F word was used, Gaddafi, not by me, by the Saudi prince who told him to do one. And I was working under the jurisdiction. And he, he grabbed, he, he sort of, shouted back to me that I would never get to Libya. And I said, well, you'd never get to Haiti, mate, and I don't like you anyway. So that was that. And um, one of the things they asked me to do was edit uh, uh, unsavory things that they'd watched or been forced to watch, or um, it was part of a, sort of an initiative to try and have a look at some Western things. So they were observing, of all things, Popeye. What is unsavory about Popeye? But it can't be anything, can it? Unsavory about Popeye? So... What happened was, as soon as olive oil appeared, they would ask me to stop. And through the translator, I realized that I never noticed before, but olive oil runs a lot, quite quickly, with long legs. They didn't like that. So anything with female long legs that ran, I had to edit that out. Popeye didn't make any sense at all. You know, Um, I edited the, The Incredible Green Hulk. There was things in there that they didn't like. But I then... Uh, remember, slowly, after taking three tours out there in the end, so I was out there for three years. It was a long time. Uh, I learned a lot. I was extremely well paid. I used it as a sort of sabbatical, if you like, because I didn't have one. I didn't go to university. But I'd used it as a time to, you know, in a hippie sense, to find myself. Realised I got married far too young. I didn't want to get married anymore. I loved my little daughter, but I just thought I was in the wrong situation. So... When I left the Middle East, that was another chapter in my life. So I decided I'd come back to the UK, get the nearest job I could from landing at Heathrow, uh, be fair and honest with my wife, give her the money to buy a house, look after my daughter, make arrangements to see my daughter as many times, but just start a new life. And uh, a mate of mine said, why don't you try ITN? Because ITN was just starting off on this new thing, they uh, because of new technology had slowed everything down in the UK, they were just going to have a go at ENG. So they were going to start at ENG, and I was the ideal person to take it on because I'm the only person who knew anything about it because I'd been shooting with small cameras in the Middle East. So ENG started off on a trial basis when I landed at Heathrow and they gave me the job of training film cameramen on video. So they told me that the 16mm medium was used on news and people would go out with a Bolex or various camera of similar nature uh, with magazines on the back and they would go to um, various places. They were very good at it, by the way, and don't get me wrong, I could see why they were residents of using new technology because it worked for them. They had very fast, quick turnover of developments and also they would stand really, very close with beautiful lenses and near a news event, and a guy would be behind me, take a magazine out, put another one in, they would take off, get that developed, and it was quite fast, to be honest with you, you know. Uh, So news could be developed quite fast. Uh, But by fluke, I did something, and it was a fluke, that assisted um, the whole introduction of ENG in the UK. Um, We were told that there was a siege at the Iranian embassy in London. And the news crews could go out and try and cover the best that they could. So being the scouts that I was, I, I used a lot of ingenuity. And I remember using all the skills I had. So I remember saying to one of the links guy, let's get a makeup girl in to give him lots of um, sort of uh, false tan. And then we put him with a Hawaiian shirt on with some suitcases as if you come back from holiday and paid somebody fairly closely to the siege to say he belonged there so the police would let him through because he was back from holiday and he wasn't. 
So we managed to pay that person um, who, whose house lived quite near to the siege to put a link and the, the, the radio link was in those suitcases. So we then um, created we, uh, a link um, from the bedroom to where we are in the outside broadcast uh, wagon. And we, we would take it in turns, uh, the team that was out there, to record back on anything that was happening around the Iranian embassy, anything around the rooftops or wherever it may be. I remember quite late on and the lads were in the pub and I think it was my shift and one of the cameras was just looking over the rooftops. I seen a guy in a balaclava, so I'm shouting to the guys, get back from the pub, there's, there's a guy with a balaclava, something's going to go down here. And and they said, we'll be with you, so they ran back from the pub. And as I ran back from the pub, I phoned Network and said to the Network, you, you should take this and take it live because something's going down now. And they said, are you sure? And I said, look at the picture. So I showed one of the guys the pictures. He said, yeah, great, great. Let's put it out. So they went, bam, put it out to Network. And 30 seconds later, the most iconic shot of British television was, bam, outside of the ice. Let me say, how about that? Not bad for a scouser, right? <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I, and I did the royal wedding. I remember just before I moved from ITN, after two years, by the way, uh, I was approached by Phil Redmond, who was from Heighton, and said he was going to go back to Liverpool to create a soap in houses. Um, was I interested in helping him? And he knew of my work, and he knew that I'd done a lot of lot with small cameras and um, and situations. And he was he wanted to put back some creativity to Liverpool because it was defunct of any real proper representation uh, on on TV. And um, he had an idea of creating a big broadcast van um, in the centre of a close and filming a close. And I said, I didn't think that would work. And if I were him, I'd, I'd consider right away wiring all the houses so they could all be interconnected and that we could have a one of the houses as a technical block and um he said well if i took one of the houses out i'd be one less resident and i said well i think you should make that compromise so we debated on all this and and i had to think about did i want to leave london anyway and then come back to liverpool and of course i did want to go back to liverpool um i remember having just before i left ITM, and one of the last things I did was I had to phone up the Vatican to find out the Pope's height so I could put in, uh, in the Pope-mobile, an angled small ENG camera to get a shot of the Pope as he was travelling around England and Liverpool as well. That was one of the things he was going with, which is fascinating. So uh, I did that and then made the transition to start on Brookside. And, you know, it was November... The second, 1982, um, Phil had done Grange Hill, but he had no knowledge of television whatsoever. I was, you know, well-versed in it. Um, I had to persuade Jeremy Isaacs that this company was worth backing. He liked Phil, but didn't think he had the expertise to carry it further. And I said, well, I do. And I said that I would be coming home to my own city and nothing would please me more than to be able to um, instill a new brand, and we used a Sony 330p camera, uh, never been used before. In fact, there was no such thing as a video lighting cameraman. Lighting cameramen were film people. So there was no ACC grade. They had to make an ACT grade uh, to be able to have these people, and we, they made them because of Brookside. Brookside revolutionised uh, the whole art of filmmaking because I was trained, of course, uh, in every department, I was trained on film, and I had worked out with Phil that we should shoot film with single camera, which is a very filmic way of shooting. Um, never been done before in the UK, by the way. There was the odd experiment on video, but n nobody liked it because the, the standard way of shooting things was like Coronation Street, which was multi-camera in a studio, you know, and that was the, the way and the skill of how TV drama was made. So we changed all that. We, we changed the grades, we spoke to the unions, and we started a new dawn, and the new dawn was Channel 4. It was 1982, November the 2nd, the first programme ever out on the air was Countdown, the second was Brookside. 
So how long did you last on, on Brookside? Yeah, I did, I did like um, six years on Brookside um, uh, and it, it was a fabulous time. You know, I remember one of the first storyline meetings with the writers was, get this, but a storyline meeting with the writers. Uh, Kay Miller, John Gobber, Frank Cottrell-Boyce, Jimmy McGovern. I think you've heard of a few of these names, yeah? Um, incredible, wasn't it? Just absolutely incredible. So all of these people were thrown together. So there was all this, these creative people with all these weird and wonderful ideas and all a very eclectic bunch of people with different experiences, different backgrounds. Look at mine, was just enormously mass, mad. But I was probably one of the few that actually knew what they were doing. And, and that was great to have the opportunity of being in your own city uh, and having a go, you know. So the idea was you needed to produce two episodes a week. We um, took on camera assistance. Peter Cappuccini is now the singular world-renowned Steadicam operator who has about 27 kits so all of these young filmmakers all graduated and became great, great names. One of them, uh, to go full circle for you, uh, Terry McDonough, uh, started off a, uh, in Cantrell Farm. We took him on as a, uh, an assistant. Griff wanted to be a camera assistant. Terry McDonough eventually went on to crack the states and rang me about a decade ago and said, Colin, I've cracked the status as a show. Like, I've just done, and I think you should have a look at it. And I said, what's it about, son? He said, it's drug-related. And I went, oh, God, can you do it? something that is not like, putting the city down in some way? Because they'll just say, you know, local scouts have cracked the state and it's drug-related. I said, anyway, what's the show called? Breaking Bad. Right, how about that? Not bad, really. <laughs> so uh, I'm telling McDonough, by the way, to go full circle, um, uh, was the lad who just... Um, directed Anthony for us, which is one high praise indeed by lots of uh, different people, uh, written by Jimmy McGovern, um, uh, produced by myself, and directed by Teddy McDonough, ex Brookside trainee. So uh, Brookside has stayed with me really, and uh, I've gone on to do a whole different style of drama and uh, independent filmmaking, but my roots will always come back to single camera, to Brookside for those five years I spent on that close training people. We must have trained thousands, and I mean thousands, of young filmmakers who've gone through that. Every time I go to BBC, people who look about 90 come up and say to me, thank you for my first break. And I thought, Jesus, if I gave you first break, how come you look so old? But anyway, it was a long, long, it was a long, long, long time ago. And it was great to have to give those people those opportunities. I'm still giving those people opportunities via my own company, LA Productions, which is based in sunny Kirkdale. And we've done a whole range of different types of production, but I've used the central core of it as a school. It's a mini Brookside, and it's a mini Brookside with the same sort of philosophy, really, which is to use young talent, to use old talent, to use people that want to move from different grades uh, within the industry, some people who thought they might like to write, we've given the opportunity to write. Some other people have said, I like my to direct. A lot of female directors, by the way. Um, a lot of diversity before it became popular, uh, really, in a way, is, is something that we did anyway and we wanted to do and we've carried on doing it, which I'm proud of. So the LA production stands for Liverpool Film Academy. So I thought the Academy would be a good basis really to draw upon talents and then nurturing them in a commercial way so we'd bring on a fresh generation of uh, filmmakers and writers and directors and so forth so it stayed with me there's subsequently so 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 many things that have happened to me post Brookside um, I was asked to create a soap in Kazakhstan there's a story for you Kazakhstan I mean, you're not believing some of these stories. Are you thinking, oh, come on, <laughs> no one man could have done all this. I bet you, I bet you, you, I bet you said you put the camera in front of me now. Yeah, yeah how about this, Kazakhstan? So uh, I went out there as a West East initiative to Kazakh film studios where Eisenstein did Battle Protelkin 
uh, and Ivor the Great and so forth. And my job was to create a soap with Tony Jordan, the great Tony Jordan uh, from EastEnders and so forth, who, by the way, uh, was actually born in Liverpool. Um, so all those things you've heard were uh, on EastEnders were, I am your mother, cat cut your tongue, and all those wonderful, phenomenal phrases that Tony Jordan over the years has come on EastEnders. Scouser, you know, have a word with yourself, girl. Not the EastEnders, Scouser. Um, so it was fabulous to go out to, to Russia. Um, uh, and we, I was there for about four months. And from, from start to finish, we created a soap. And you asked me about the name of the first one. I've got to tell you this one. So we said to the, the Russian writers, right, look, you've seen what we've done on Brookside. You've seen what we've done on The Bill. You've seen what we've done on EastEnders. The social responsible dramas, you need to do this to be sustainable. And why don't you be helpful by making it a drama about Russians um, and Kazakhs and have one marry the other so there's a bridge uh, and then we can tell interesting stories. They liked it, but he kept saying to me, Mr. Cullen, Mr. Cullen, where are the uh, storytellers? Where are the werewolves? So I said, what werewolves? But werewolves is <laughs> a big part of their culture, you see. So not to have werewolves in it didn't make any sense to them at all. So we had to shove a few werewolves in and, and so forth to try and colloquialise uh, the soap. Um, so I, I remember, like, and so have you got no bloody stories that, that are, are, you know, are, are rooted in reality that, that people will find interesting? So there's a gap, and the guy puts his hand up and says, okay, how about... This story that quite a lot of us have to go foraging for work and for food. And some of us have been to Chernobyl many times and found lots of items that we could sell. And we bring them home, and we sell them, but we end up with lots of radioactivity on these things. And we end up poisoning some of our families that we're here to protect, and some of them die. Is that a good story? I said, well, that's the most incredible thing I've ever heard of in my life. And they said, well, it's true. And this is years and years and years and years before the the series Chernobyl came on the air, by the way, which, you know, highlighted some of these things that went on. So the Kazakhstan period was a phenomenal period in my life. Um, Really interesting. Getting back to your question about names. In the end, we say, okay, you've done it. You've created your first week. Um, I'm going to leave next week. What are you going to call it? So they all go into a huddle and come out with a name. It sounded great. Uh, it sounded a great name. I can forget the actual name in Russian, but it sounded good. And I said to them, what does it translate as? And they said, oh, it translates as um, crossroads. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to go home and say, I've spent all this time in the middle, you know, in, in, in Kazakhstan creating something and it's called Bloody Crossroads. I said, call it something else, anything. Anyway, they didn't and it was still called Crossroads. And I remember checking on it. I don't think it exists today, but I know it ran for at least 10 years. And I came back and this time I went to London for about three years and created a, a company called the North-South Partnership. I'd met a guy at Brookside, who was a southerner, and I said, well, why don't we take some of the skills we've learned and try improve the quality um, of drama? So one of the first, in fact, it was the first, I think, uh, drama uh, we turned it around with um, by fluke. It had come to us because uh, Peter Ansel, she was director of Channel 4, said to me, do you know any black writers, Colin? And I'm with Frank Cottrell-Bosch at the time. We're trying to sell a story. And, um, Frank says, well, what about Trix Worrell? Because Trix Worrell did Desmond's. It was about a, a comedy, a black comedy about uh, in Saturn Hairdressers. And he said, no, no, that's a comedy. You know, we're looking for a black writer to write drama and maybe do the first ever black drama series for Channel 4. So Frank said, I can do that. And I said, well, you? And he said, well, I studied in um, Oxford. It wasn't the dreamy spires of Morse. It was the bedsit land. I know the black community really well, and I think I could do it. Um, so rather remarkably, 
they give us the opportunity of creating and producing the first ever black drama for Channel 4, which was called The Real Eddie English. It was Frank Windsor, who's ex-Z Cars, who I always, always wanted to work with and became the lead. Um, and I remember a lot of the black cast saying, the problem with this drama, con, I don't know who's black and who's white in it. And I said, exactly, that's the way it should be, shouldn't it? And I, I said, it's just a story, you know, it's not banging any drums about anything really in a way. It's just a family story. And that's what we did. And I was most proud. So when did you decide to set up LA Productions? It's been going 20 years. Uh, it was a time of my life, post that three years I did in, in London, I decided, uh, as you do, you get this call, the inner call to say, go home, young man. I wasn't a young man, but I wanted to go home anyway. Um, and I thought, yeah, well, go home. So Liverpool, although I had, Brooks had spawned an awful lot of uh, creativity and an awful lot of local filmmaking had happened, but it hadn't adhered that much and it did need more of a stable base and it needed people to commit to it, really. So I decided that I would make my last move uh, from all the journeys that I'd had in the Middle East and, and, and Russia and, and London and so forth and, and come home and, and, and see if I could build the film community of Liverpool up. And, of course, I reached out to various people to help. Jimmy McGovern was one. Um, we thought we'd give it a go. And we're now in our just completed our 12th series of Moving On, which is five dramas. Uh, and that is so far 65 episodes. We've done 65 play for the days from our own city, hoping to get series 13 next year. Who knows? God willing. Along the way in Liverpool, we, we did socially responsible and, uh, and very powerful dramas. We did Common, which was about joint enterprise law, and it helped change the law. We showed that to um, the select committee, and it influenced uh, a reinterpretation of the joint enterprise law. And we did a film about the Iraqi war with Reg Keys called Reg, and that help people reevaluate um, the whole Iraqi war situation and so forth and, and, and brought um, to boot a, a, a lot of people um, like Tony Blair uh, into question for the decisions they'd made. Jimmy always wanted to do something about priests because he'd done a film about priests that started off as a 12-parter, then became a 10-parter, then a six-parter, and it never got made, and in the end, he managed to get a 90-minute film called Priest, but he always wanted to revisit that and do something more about it. So as we were back in Liverpool and not that long ago, we thought we'd do a series called Broken with Sean Bean about a Catholic priest. And that's one of the things we're most proud of. And it won a BAFTA for Sean Bean, which was great. Um, being a Hytonian, I always wanted to do the Anthony Walker story, but really felt it had to come from his mum, G. Walker, to want to do it. And during the shooting of Broken, we asked G. Walker to help us with one of the characters. who was a female black writer who was taking the role of uh, a black mum with a son that was tragically killed. So we introduced her to G. Walker. And after it, G. said, do you know what, Colin, I'm ready to tell my story. So... Jimmy worked on that for about 18 months, and that was the last but one thing we've made. The very last thing we've made is moving on, and it basically follows in the portfolio of challenging dramas we've done. Last season, we did a story um, which was about a blind woman who gains their sight, wrote by a blind girl in Braille. This time round, we did one about a deaf girl whom uh, is losing her hearing and losing her husband because of it and to test family life because of, of an affliction. Um, I think it's a fabulous, fabulous episode. We're still in the process of fine-cutting that. 
uh, and hopefully that they'll push it out quicker because a lot of rubbish telly on at the moment. And I think what we've just achieved um, during uh, COVID times is phenomenal. We've done five wonderful dramas right up to the moment. And I hope they'll put them out um, very, very, very shortly. Um, we will deliver them in about six weeks um, from Sonny Kirkdale. Kirkdale has been my last leg of my journey, if you like. I've been here 20 years. I hope to be here as long as God will have me uh, and carry on doing what I'm doing, which is give, giving young filmmakers opportunities, giving people who want to try things out in industry more chance uh, to make that those first steps. So it's probably not a bad time to say, that's me so far. Let me just close then by asking you a question about the future, which is really all your life, really since Saudi Arabia anyway, that you've been a, a trainer and a teacher. You're literally sitting in a an old school building there in, in Kirkdale in the, in the headmaster's office. What advice would you have for young filmmakers then now, people who are going out into the sort of workplace, graduating, leaving school, a time of great uncertainty, really, but who are interested in becoming filmmakers, working in the media? Well, I suppose there's thousands of anecdotes, you know, old farts like me can say, and it all sounds smug, you know, because you've done it, you've achieved your bit. So, so it's all right to pass on, you know, glib sentences to people and say, why don't you try this? I know how hard it is. I was one of 2,000 people at Garda Studios who was discriminated against, who uh, were made fun of because of my Scouse accent. When I would and tell a cine and I was putting films out to the network, I would say, roll Fulham, they'd go, ah! and they'd laugh and scorn at me and so forth. So I know how difficult it is. My advice would be uh, to those people is that if you um, want to achieve anything, in life, this is a terrible analogy, but I'll give you it anyway, um, which is you've got a car that won't start and you know nothing about cars. So how in God's name are you going to get that car started, right? This is metaphoric, right? Well, why don't you pick the bonnet up and stick your nose in and have a good look round and at least show some bloody initiative that you would like to get this going if you could. Somebody will come along and say, you've got a problem there, son. And you can say, yeah, I don't think about cars. Okay, let's have a go. And that person will help you. So I would say, show some initiative. Don't expect things to come to you. They won't come to you. Say to people, I've got an inkling. I may be good at this. Uh, it's not that difficult to find some way in, but you need to persevere with it. You need to believe in yourself. If you've got any form of inkling whatsoever, that you feel it's an itch that needs to be scratched, then go with that, go with that, go with the start. It can be as small as you want it to be, but there are opportunities, they are created, but the spark has to come from you and you have to initiate circumstances where that spark will be generated because you create an environment for it to prosper and you can do that. So that would be my message. Colin, thank you for joining us in the Lonely Arts Club. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. One day I'll give you the full story, right? <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by the Institute for Creative Enterprise at Edchill University. Making connections through culture. I'm editor and producer Roz Power with audio production by Sam August of Onomatopoeia Studios in Liverpool. For further details on the work of the Institute for Creative Enterprise and courses at Edchill University, visit www.edgehill.ac.uk forward slash ice.